I'd be expressing appreciation for your presence tonight. We have a large crowd. The building is nearly full, and that is uh, extremely pleasing and uh, humbling, and we're grateful for the presence of each and every one. And I want to begin by thanking all the members of the Pippin Congregation for being here tonight. Appreciate so much your deciding to be here. I believe it is a mark of faithfulness or unfaithfulness, as the case may be, when a person is in the assemblies as they are supposed to be. I believe Hebrews 13:17 is a passage that obligates us to be uh, obedient to the decisions of our elders and the leaders of the church as far as matters of judgment and opinion in the work of the church is concerned, and that would include the time of our services. And... Uh, Sometimes members choose not to do that, but you are here tonight, and I want you to know I appreciate it. Even though it is a sense of obligation, it's also a privilege, and we're glad you're here. And if you're visiting, we are especially delighted that you've come to help this congregation and support it and encourage it and encourage the preaching of the gospel. And We're delighted that you've come from wherever you may be. We appreciate very much your being here tonight. And I hope that uh, and would encourage the members at Pippin now when these other congregations have their meetings with good men that come to, to preach, faithful men, then you go and support them and uh, encourage them. And uh, as I mentioned to somebody yesterday, the best reason for going, though, is another opportunity to worship God. And even though it might be in a sister congregation's building, that's, that's the best reason to go. And then to help and encourage them as well and to build and maintain the fellowship, the camaraderie between the sister congregations so that the church can have a strong bond of love and faith and hope and all of those good Christian qualities and uh, in exalting Christ in the community and in this area. We're glad you've come tonight. In Exodus chapter 3, we read about God's call of Moses to go back from Midian to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of the Egyptian bondage. God had heard and had been hearing the crying and the sighing of the children of Israel in Egypt as more and more and more their lives were burdened and bittered, embittered by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh. And now the time had come to, to bring them out, and Moses was the man. And it's interesting to read through Exodus chapter 3 and 4 and note how that God, having called Moses, he then offers some excuses for the reason why he should not be the one to go. And while we're not going to study all of those excuses tonight, it makes an interesting study to think about what he says. First of all, he says, well, who am I? And then he comes a little later to say, well, when I go, who do I say sent me? And uh, the Lord tells him that I am is the name that he was to give the Israelites. And in chapter 4 he says, well, they will not believe that you sent me. And so in verse 2, God asked Moses a question. And again, it's like our study yesterday afternoon from uh, Genesis chapter 3. The question was not asked because God needed to know. He already knew. But he asked that question, he said to Moses, what is that in thine hand? And of course it was a staff. And Moses told him to cast it down upon the ground, and he did, and it became a serpent or a snake. And Moses ran and hid. Man after my own heart. I believe I would have too. 
And then the Lord told him to go back and pick it up by the tail. And if he just had to said, pick it up, and I'd have picked it up by the tail, wouldn't you? Moses picked it up and it turned back into a staff. And then a little later on, God said, put your hand into your bosom. And he took it out and it was leprous. And he put it in, brought it back out and it was whole. And then, uh, of course, Moses said, well, I, I don't know how to speak. And so God sent Aaron to be his spokesman. And then finally Moses came to say, Lord, send by the hand of whomsoever you will. And that's when the Lord got angry with Moses. But now what I want us to do tonight is go back and think about that question. We studied about a question yesterday. We study about a question tonight. What is that in thine hand? What is that in thine hand? Sometimes we know we use the word hand or hands to talk about something in or out of our control. And, uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 9, God spoke to Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and he told her to go back and to submit herself under the hands of Sarah. And then a little later on in the book of Genesis, chapter 37, in verse 21, when the sons of Jacob had taken Joseph and they were discussing the matter of killing Joseph, Reuben overheard them, and verse 21 of Genesis 37 says that he delivered Joseph out of their hands. He didn't obviously set him free, but he delivered him out of their hands so that they couldn't at least kill him at that moment. And so there's the idea of control, you see, of, of taking him away from them. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 31, the writer, in the context of talking about one who persists in willful sin, says in that context, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I hasten to add that he's talking about those who, who sin willfully. I, while it is a fearful thing to think about falling into the hands of God unprepared, if we are faithful children of God, we do not have to dread the judgment. That's why the writer of Hebrews said earlier that Jesus uh, took upon himself the nature of children, of, of man, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in about verse 14. And then in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of men. He was going to allow himself to be taken by men and to be uh, mistreated, abused, and finally crucified at Calvary. And of course, he allowed that to happen because we all remember that whenever that uh, mob of men came out under the guidance of Judas to the place in the garden where they would find Jesus, that Jesus told Peter when he drew the sword to defend him. He said, put your sword up. Don't you know that I could presently call to my father and he'd send me 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And so he allowed that to be done. If he had not wanted it to be so, there weren't enough men and armies in the world that could have taken the Son of God, the one who created this world and everything in it, and brought him to death. And he allowed that. But you see, the idea of the hands... Some things are outside of our control. There are some things about which we can do absolutely nothing. We had the announcement made tonight about the passing of the sister over at Will Avenue. Those are the kinds of things that are outside of our control. Now obviously we could, any of us, decide to end our own life by our own hand, but if we go on and live, the amount of time that we live on this earth, as we're going to study a little bit later, is something that is out of our control. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8 says, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war, and neither doth wickedness deliver them that are given thereto. While the will to live is a strong factor in prolonging life and even recovery from illness and surgeries and such, there comes a time and a place when no matter how great and strong the will of a person is to live, death is going to win that battle ultimately. It's appointed unto man once to die and this is the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And when the spirit begins to leave the body, we do not have the capacity to grab it as it were and hold it and keep it from leaving. Ecclesiastes 8 and 8, Solomon says. There's some things that are out of our control. The weather's out of our control. We don't have anything to do with that. We have to take what we get. But there are some things that are in my control and mine alone. There are some things that are in your hands and yours alone. What is that in thine hand? First of all, your life is in your hands. Now, we're not talking here about the length of life so much, but we're talking about the kind of life that you live, the quality of that life, the character of that life. Your life is in your hands. Whatever you are right now is the result of the choices and the decisions that you've made and the conduct and the consequences that have grown out of them. And while there are many factors that might have entered into the choice that you ultimately made, it was your choice, just as it has been mine. My life, as I stand before you tonight, approaching 54 years of age, if I live until the 28th day of July of this year, I'll give you my address later on if you want to send me any birthday cards. But my life, nearly 54 years old, is what it is because of what I have chosen to make it. It was and it is in my hands for my life to be what it is and what it will be. In Genesis chapter 6 we read in verse 5 that the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now listen to the descriptive language that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. God looked down into this world and he saw that great wickedness, pervasive wickedness everywhere that he looked. But then you read in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is one of the few, if not the only one, and his family, who could have ever used the excuse, if he had been so of a mind to, to say, well, everybody else is doing it. I know there are times when my children and your children when they were growing up and when we ourselves, when we were growing up, probably begged for permission to do something that probably wasn't wise, may have even been wrong. And the excuse is offered, well, everybody else is doing it. Well, everybody else wasn't doing it. Mom and Daddy weren't doing it. But in Noah's case, everybody else was doing it. Out of all of the people in the world at that time, only eight souls saved by water, Peter says. Only eight. What about all of the wickedness and the influence that it would bring to bear upon the life of Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives? What about the pressure that would be brought to bear? 
those around about them to conform and to blend in with the way we're living and the, what we're doing. No, why do you want to stick out and stand out and be standoffish? Why don't you want to join in and be like everybody else? Noah's life and the life of all of those in his family was exactly what they made it because it was in their hands to so do. And it's still that way for everyone tonight and everyone that ever has been in this world or will be. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, it says concerning Moses, the writer says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was by then about 40 years old when he left Egypt, went to Midian, stayed there another 40 years. He was about 80 when he went back. But there came that place and that time when Moses, growing up in the home of Pharaoh, as it were, with all of the luxury and all of the privilege that belonged to him as a member of the royal family, the adopted son, as it were, of Pharaoh's daughter, all that was available to him. And there came the time when Moses chose to no longer live with all of the luxury and all of the pleasure and all of the advantages that belonged to him as a member of Pharaoh's family and instead choose to go out and cast his lot with slaves. What about the influence, Moses? What about the pressure? What about the tears of an adopted mother, as it were? What about the disappointment in the hearts of those that had expectations for you? What about the pressure that all of that would bring? But Moses chose right as opposed to wrong. Moses chose suffering rather than, in, rather than convenience and ease. And Moses' life was what he chose and made of it because it was in his hands. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, when Paul the Apostle is standing before Agrippa, making his defense on that occasion, prior to being sent to Rome, he says concerning himself that those that were there, if they would testify concerning his former life, he says, they know that I lived I was of the straightest sect of the Pharisees, or a straightest sect of the Jews. I lived a Pharisee. The Pharisees were respected generally. That's why when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into heaven. That would have been an extremely impressive and demanding statement in the eyes and minds of those that heard it. But of course, he could look into the heart and see they were hypocrites, Matthew 23. But here is Saul of Tarsus. He had advanced among or beyond those of his own peers. In Philippians 3, he talks about the advancement that he'd made and the position that he held, and yet he counted all of that as but dung to be a faithful child of God, to be in Christ. Saul's life was in his hands. And he, just like each one of us, 
comes to a place in life, maybe we have several opportunities, several crossroads where we have the opportunity to make the choice. But he came to a crossroads in his life where he had the opportunity to make a choice, to continue down the path he was going, to hold on to the position that he enjoyed, to have the admiration of his peers and even of those that he, of his uh, tutors and advisors. Or to cast in with that which he'd been trying to destroy. And his life was in his hands, wasn't it? It was his choice. And after he became a Christian, those in Jerusalem, we're told by Luke, had only heard that he that had once tried to destroy Christianity was now preaching it. But it was his choice. His life was in his hands. That's true of every one of us tonight. There are all kinds of advantages and disadvantages that every one of us enjoy as we live. Some have more of one than the other. I'm aware of that. There are all kinds of trials and tribulations that people have to endure. And some seem to have more than their share at times. I'm aware of that. But what we are and what we do with our life is our choice. When I come to the end of my life, whenever that may be, and I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will be giving an account, as we noted yesterday, Romans 14, 12, of myself and what I did with my life because it was and is in my hands. It doesn't make any difference what you do to me or don't do to me, whether you like me or don't like me, whether you help me or hurt me. My life is in my hands. And yours is in your hands. And so I ask the question tonight, are you making of your life that of a faithful child of God? Now you can point to hypocrites, faithful members, you can point to trials and tribulations that you have that others may not. But your life is your own. And you are what you are tonight, either a faithful child of God or not, and there's no other alternative, there's no other choice because of what you're doing with your life. And let me hastily add this observation. Sometimes I've heard members, and I may have even used this terminology myself in the past, Long, long ago at least. Sometimes people say, uh, Preacher, I, I know I need to be more faithful. You know the Bible doesn't use that terminology. Now the Bible talks about little faith and great faith. But the Bible doesn't talk about more or less faithful. You're either faithful or you're not. And the admission that I need to be more faithful may very well be an admission I'm really not faithful at all. What's that in your hand? Your life is in your hand. And this goes very closely with it. What is that in your hand? Well, your time is in your hand because really life is simply the accumulation of how we've used our time. If you ask a man for 15 minutes of his time, you're asking him for 15 minutes of his life. I'm mindful tonight that as I stand before you and I'm asking you to give the Lord and His Word these minutes, ever how many they will accumulate to be, 
to give those minutes to listen to me try to impress upon your hearts and minds something I believe to be important, I'm asking you for that portion of your life. But your time is in your hand. And what you do with it is entirely up to you. In Psalms 90 and verse 10, the psalmist said, The days of our years are threescore and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For they soon pass, they soon flee away and we pass away. They're gone and we pass away. So you come down to verse 12 and what does he say? So then teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Now, if you're like me, and probably most of us, to one degree or another, it sometimes take life for granted. Did you think about dying today? James, you know, talks about in James 4. Go to now, verse 13, you that say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and stay there a year and buy and sell and get gain. He goes on to say, we do not know what tomorrow holds. What is your life? It's, it's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then passes away. You ought to say, if the Lord will, today or tomorrow we'll do such and such. Do you think about dying today? We take, kindly take life for granted sometimes. We make plans of what we're going to do tomorrow and the next day and next week. And we talk about our vacation and may even know how many days and weeks it will be until vacation. I'll guarantee you most every teacher knows how many days are left in school. And the students do too. The teachers have probably got it down to the hours where the children just got it down to the days. But what if we don't see those days? Our time is in our hands. While we don't want to be filled with gloom and doom and, and live constantly under that cloud of fear of death because the Lord died to take that away, we still want to be aware and mindful of the fact of the brevity and frailty of life. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, Solomon said, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. What about our time? Our time is in our hands. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama and was able a few years, several years back after trying to preach and trying to make a preacher, I, I was offered the invitation to move back down just outside of that city and preach and we were there for five and a half years. And I grew up in Huntsville but my father's influence led me to be a, a pretty avid Tennessee fan back then. I'm still a fan but maybe not quite as avid. And uh, it was hardly living down there and, and amongst all those Alabama and Auburn fans and others. But I said that to say this. We would occasionally go to Knoxville to the ball games in, on the, in the fall. And I remember one Sunday morning going into the church building and somebody asked me about a particular member of the congregation that had been ill. I didn't know what their latest condition was and I remember giving the answer and saying, you know, I didn't have time to check on them this week, but I'd been to the ball game Saturday. And I got to thinking about that. I thought, you know, that wasn't right. It wasn't that I didn't have time, it was that I chose to use my time in another way. My time was in my hands. Your time's in your hands. 
whatever we did today with the time of this day as we've lived it is an indication of what we deem to be important. Now I know the day's not over and you may go home and it may be your routine to do this and go home and read, sit down tonight before you go to bed and read your Bible, but, and, and I hope that you will if you haven't, but have you read the newspaper today? Have you been on the internet to read maybe a paper in another city or check your email and read all of that? But haven't read your Bible? Pillow your head tonight without doing so? You're telling yourself and others that know you what something about what is important in the use of your time. It's important to you to read the paper. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But if you do that and don't read the Bible, then it's more important for you to use your time to read the Bible. I don't usually write out to-do lists. I have them in my head. You may, sometimes I should have written them down because I forget. But maybe you write them down. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes the to-do list may be longer and involve more time to do each of those and we have time in a day to fulfill them. Now, whichever ones you decide to do, you're saying that's more important than the other one. How do we use our time? Obviously. Obviously. We ought to use time through a day to give some attention to the spiritual because that's the eternal. How much of the time that we use in our life is used for things that will not last and that will one day be destroyed when this world comes to an end? consequence of the choice we made will be eternal. Your time is in your hands. Years and years ago, my sister went out of a meeting house one night and the preacher standing at the back was Brother Gus Nichols. Brother Nichols' name may not carry the weight up here that it does down in Alabama, but Brother Nichols was considered to be a great preacher. You knew the Bible thoroughly. And as she went out that night, she said, I, Brother Nichols, I'd give half my life to know the Bible like you do. And Brother Nichols simply said, that's what it takes. What about your time? Your time is in your hand. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you made the choice how you would use your time. Your influence is in your hands. And your influence will be directly related and in co correlation to your life and your time. Whatever you're doing with your life, because of what you're doing with your time, that will determine your influence. Matthew 5 and verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savour, it's henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You're the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The phrase so shine, the word so there is an adverb of manner. He didn't say let your light shine. Your light is shining. The question is, how is it shining? 
Your light shining, my light shining, everybody in here is light shining. You know, everybody has influence. Even little babies have influence, don't they? They sure do. Let one start crying. Whether in the meeting house or in the middle of the night. And they influence the lives of everybody within earshot of their little lungs as they exercise them. Everybody has influence. And so Jesus doesn't say, let your light shine. He says, let it so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11, he said, I beseech you, dearly beloved, as strangers and pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify your Father in the day of visitation. Then he says, Submit yourselves unto every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We ought to be obedient to civil authority unless it violates the will of God for the sake of the glory of God. He says, Unto kings, as unto kings, as supreme, or unto governors as unto those who are sent by them for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those that do well. For this, he says, is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of the foolish. We ought to be good citizens. Why? And obey the laws of the land, including traffic laws and all other laws. Why? Because that is a way of reflecting favorably on God. Honoring him, having a good influence, we're able to do that. It has been said by any number of people any number of times, and I believe it to be true, that it, whether you go to heaven to live eternally with God or go to hell to live eternally with the devil and his angels, you're going to take somebody with you. Look into the face of your dear wife, men, if she's still on this side of eternity. Do you want to live in such a way that you influence her to be lost? Look into the face of that husband, ladies. If he's still here in this world. You want to conduct your life in such a way you will contribute to his being lost. Now, it's his life. I know that he has to make that choice. But we're having an influence on the choice people make. Look into the faces of your children. Into the faces of your grandchildren. You want to live your life and use your time in such a way that you contribute to them being lost. You're having an influence on people. The people that are the nearest and dearest to you in this world. Look into the face of your parents. I'd give anything tonight to talk to my daddy about the gospel one more time. Look into their face. Would you like to live your life in a way that influences them to choose not to obey the gospel? Choose not to be faithful? You're having an influence, and it's, it's in your hands. Nobody else can make you have a good influence or a bad influence. 
It's in your hands. And last of all tonight, there are probably many other things we could talk about. Your soul is in your hands. Because your soul and its eternal destiny will be determined by how you live your life, what you do with your time, and what you make of your influence. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew chapter 16, what, a, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 26. Every person on, time, on the other side of eternity, on the opposite of time side of eternity, that are in that eternal torment tonight would give everything they could have ever accumulated in this world for one opportunity to be where you're at tonight. And they wouldn't wait for the invitation song to be sung. They wouldn't have waited for the assembly to even start if they were here. They would have urgently come running to be saved. Remember, the rich man in Luke chapter 16, some think it's a parable. I don't think so, but it makes little difference as far as the interpretation is concerned. Verses 19 to 31 Lazarus laid at his gate. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. They both died. The rich man was in torment. Saw Lazarus over there in the comfort of Abraham's bosom. He cried out to Abraham, Send Lazarus over that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in torment in this flame. How awful hell the torment there must have been if just one little drop of water on the end of a man's finger would give him a moment's relief. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime had your good things and Lazarus his evil, and now he is comforted in your torment. The rich man had his soul in his hand, but he didn't think anything about his life. He didn't think anything about time. He didn't think about his influence. Now he's in torment. And so shall he be. He pled with Abraham, send Lazarus back to talk to my brothers. I've got five brothers in my father's house. Send him back to warn them lest they come to this place. Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Oh no, send Lazarus. They'll hear if one comes back from the dead. No, they won't, Abraham said. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't hear though one rose from the dead. Their soul was in their hand to do whatever they would with it. The rich man was afraid they would live and come to where he was, but it was up to them because their soul is in there. Your soul is in your hand tonight. Proverbs 8, and I believe it's about verse 36, wisdom personified is saying, those that hate me, those that sin against me, rather, wrong their own soul. Those that hate me love death. You see, it, it breaks the heart of those that love us. It breaks the heart of God when we sin. But the soul that we are destroying first and foremost is ourselves. And yes, our influence may be felt in the lives of others, but you see, my soul's in my hand. You can't make me be lost unless I choose to let you make me be lost. You can't make me go to heaven unless I choose to let you influence me. So, But it's up to me. My soul's in my hand. Just like my life, just like my time, just like my influence, my soul is in my hand. God is pleading with us.
to come to him because we have sinned against him. God is demonstrating the love that he has for us by showing us that his son died at Calvary without sin for sin, that we might be saved from our sins. And we hold it in our hands to do whatever we will. Now, how is it with you tonight? I know that you're here on a Monday night, and that is an indication of your great interest in spiritual things. But if there's someone in this audience tonight, in this assembly tonight, that has not yet obeyed the gospel, your soul is in your hand. And you can point to unfaithful people. You can point to wicked people and mean people. You can point to pressures that the world brings to bear. But it's in your hand, and you can obey the gospel tonight, and you can live the Christian life like Noah did in a world of extreme wickedness, like Moses did in the lap of luxury, like Saul of Tarsus did, forsaking and changing everything about the life he had lived to be a faith child. You can do that. And faithful brethren in this audience will help and encourage you to do that. If you will, you believe in Christ, and he says repent, Acts 2.38. Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, Romans 10.9 and 10, and be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. To wash your sins away, Acts 22.16, in the blood of Christ, Revelation 1.5. And to arise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6.4 having been put into Christ, Romans 6, 3, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. You need to obey the gospel tonight to become a Christian. It's in your hands. Are you a child of God but unfaithful? It is in your hands tonight to do something about that. You can come forward. You can respond. Make your life right. and Let brethren know of your repentance tonight if you've sinned in a public way. It's in your hands to do that. And it's in your hands to refuse Whatever happens on the day of judgment when we finally ultimately meet God will then be in his hands. And he'll do with us according to what we've done with our life, our time, our influence, and finally our soul. How is it with you? If you need to come, won't you? While we stand together and sing.